Gore Vidal, as we know, is certainly one of the most perceptive uh, social political critics in the country, has a style that was well, salubrious is really the word for it, and he's known for his insights and for his calling the shots as he sees them. And of course, he knows politics as well as anyone around and about. And we know, too, he's a remarkably good historical novelist. We know this from Burr, from Washington, D.C., and from previous other books dealing with American history. And now he's come through again. It's simply called his novel, and it's a huge one, but a very one filled with insights and style, called Lincoln. Now, we know many books have been written about Abe Lincoln, but yet this is a fresh and rather revealing approach of a side of Lincoln we know too little about. The publisher's a random house, and I'm delighted that Gore Vidal is guest. And I thought, to open Gore, the Civil War had more songs than any war in history, I think, and certainly American history. And as a song deals with Lincoln immediately, and it, it sets up, I suppose, the idea of a legend, and maybe there's a reality behind this one. This is one that was v hit parade, number one, 1864. <laughs> Gore, I think th this song immediately sets up Lincoln, the wilderness, certainly a, a mystical figure and, and a mythic figure. Now, there was a flesh and blood guy behind all this. I must say, I, Studs, I'd never heard that song before. And, it's, uh, it is nice, the idea. He did come out of the wilderness, and I must say, Jeff Davis, he did tore down the government, which was Lincoln's view of what Jeff Davis and the other, as Lincoln called them, elements in rebellion against this government. He never recognized there was a Confederate States of America. He was entirely the Union, could not be dissolved, he said. Yeah. It is as a one entity, and you cannot leave it. Yeah. But immediately your book opens, and we recognize a, a flesh-and-blood figure. It's, uh, he's just been elected first term, and he came by train, but not at all greeted, no parade greeting on the kind. He came secretly with a couple of Secret Service men, one Pinkerton, who achieved later fame and notoriety as, as a union buster, but he was his protector. Now, how come, beginning it set up this talk of violence and assassination immediately? Oh, it was hanging over his head from the moment he left Springfield. He took about a 12-day trip across the country with the family and his secretaries, and uh, various states were going out of the union as he made his triumphal progress. And when he got to Harrisburg, which was his last stop before Washington, the word came that uh, the plug uglies, as they were called, the sort of riffraff in Baltimore, were going to blow up his train as he came through the town. So he was persuaded rather reluctantly to come himself on an earlier train in disguise with one bodyguard and with Mr. Pinkerton, which he did, and he had a sleepless night. He said, I didn't put this in the book, but he... There was a man in the next car, in the next compartment to his, as Lincoln's trying to sleep, who, who was dead drunk, but awake enough to keep singing Dixie. And that drove Lincoln nearly out of his head that night, this man. You know, look away, look away, Dixie land, he kept hearing. He kept saying, Lincoln said, look away to what? What are you looking away to? Yeah, but the town, Washington, D.C., which you know very well today and within our lifetime, Washington, D.C. was was deeply 
profoundly Southern and profoundly pro-slavery, the town itself, was it not? Oh, sure. It was also, may I say, deeply Southern and pro-slavery when I was growing up in Washington in the 20s and the 30s. It was a sleepy Southern town and very typical, no different, say, from Charleston or Richmond, except it had the federal government there. So he comes to this town, which is pro-rebel, pro-Southern, and they're surrounded by slave states. They've got Baltimore, uh, Maryland on the one hand, and Virginia on the other. Virginia is ultimately the head of the rebellion. Baltimore uh, was very anti-Lincoln. Maryland very much wanted to go out of the Union, and Lincoln, in his casual way, said, no, we're not going to let you go. They said, well, we are going to go. We're going to hold a meeting in the state legislature and vote ourselves out. And he moved quick as lightning, put a military garrison in Baltimore, arrested the mayor of Baltimore, arrested the mayor of Washington, and locked him up. And he held Maryland in the Union, but just barely. And every now and then, they'd, they'd the capital would be surrounded, and they couldn't get uh, troops through and the wires would be cut, and he'd be isolated. Oh, yeah, there's a great line near the beginning. It sets the tone. Uh, they worry about the t- he had the two bodyguards with him, namely Pinkerton and Lamone. Yes. And Lord. and uh, Lincoln says to one of them, you know, take your brass. You don't have to wear the brass knuckles. Take them off. He says, in this city, you better keep them on. <laughs> so, well, I think Lamone was absolutely right. He, he was, and he was a southerner too, which made it all the more ironic. Washington, D.C. was a very dangerous city for Abraham Lincoln, and as it proved, he was killed in the city. But here he is. He came out of the wilderness, and he's become now to the low esteem which he's held by some of his colleagues. The Rube, who comes from the frontier country, and there is William Seward, who was a defeated candidate for the nomination that Lincoln won in Chicago, and a salmon chase. And basically the story of these three men, that's part of your book, the ambitions of each of the three. Well, yes, there are three men, each of whom thinks he should be the president, and only one of them is the president. And as far as the country went, I think at that time, on that cold February day in 1861, when Lincoln arrives in Washington, I think the country basically would have preferred probably Mr. Seward, governor of New York and really the real head of the Republican Party, or the former governor of Ohio, Salmon P. Chase, uh, who who was a great abolitionist, eloquent man. Lincoln's masterstroke then was, since his two rivals were always plotting against him, he put them in his cabinet. So he could watch them every day, and uh, he wasn't going to let them yeah. going back to going into the Senate over to the other end or of, of uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. So he, it was very shrewd of him, and he kept his eye on them for four years. Each tried to overthrow him. Seward finally came around to the idea this was a very great. He was man. able to play one against the other too. Oh yes, and then when the time came when Mr. Chase was was down there on Capitol Hill trying to get the Senate to come around to really forced Lincoln to make Chase his prime minister. You know, they thought of Lincoln as an ineffectual figurehead who needed a really canny prime minister. And Lincoln outsmarted him on that. Well, we have to come to the question of slavery then. And we always think of Lincoln freeing the slaves in the Emancipation Proclamation, but he was pretty ambivalent when it comes to the subject. We had a problem here, whereas Seward 
was more of or Chase, well, e- either both, one was more the abolitionist. Oh, well, Chase really was a d- dedicated abolitionist and always had been. He thought that was the r- great moral question of the country and thought Lincoln weak on it, which he was. Uh, Seward had said, uh, you know, there, there, there will be a conflict over, over this issue and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Lincoln had played a much slower, more canny game he said basically he did not want to see slavery extended into the western states, the new territories. But he didn't want to change slavery in the South because he didn't feel he had the constitutional right, nor did he much care about it. And he once said, and I think this set the tone to his administration and was the background of the war, he said, look, he said, if I can preserve the Union, which is what he was up to, by freeing all the slaves, I will do it. I can preserve the Union by freeing none of the slaves. That will be my course of action if I can preserve the Union by freeing some and not by freeing others. That's what I will do. And that is indeed what he did with the Emancipation Proclamation. He freed all the slaves in the South, over whom he had no control, and kept all the slaves in the Union to keep the border states that were with him, like Kentucky, Tennessee, Maryland, happy. So there was a problem here. Then he had this, in fact, the, the abolitionists, he used the phrase Jacobins about that. Oh, well, he thought they were revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they were called the radical Republicans, yeah. and they were the ones who not only wanted to free all the slaves immediately, but they wanted to punish the South in perpetuity for having uh, gone against the Union. And Lincoln's argument about that, he said, first, the Union cannot be divided, and I will not let these states go. And uh, the South responded, look, we have every right to leave a union that we came into of our own free will. And they did have that right, both constitutionally, legally, and morally. Lincoln's greatness, and what makes him astonishing, is he said, no, you may not leave. This union may not be dissolved. Now, where he got that from, I think, came out of something in his character that uh, didn't occur to anybody. He had no case. They used to quote to him what he'd said in 1847 about uh, the time of the Mexican War, which he'd opposed. And he said, any people anywhere have the right to form their own government and to remove themselves Mm -hmm. from another power if they don't like them. So when the Southerners come and quote that back at him, his answer was very weak. He said, well, he said, you know, you wouldn't uh, wouldn't respect me if I weren't more intelligent today than I was 20 years Mm -hmm. ago. Yeah. He also... Now it's a question of using wartime powers. Now comes, now comes the remarkable aspects of Lincoln's career in which he actually suspended habeas corpus. Oh, indeed he did. Papers. Uh, he sus- suspended the writ of habeas corpus across the land, and he ha- had his military commanders arrest practically anybody they want to and, uh, wanted to and, and, and would hold them until they um, wanted to let them go. He shut down newspapers. He shut down a newspaper here in Chicago. I think it was the Chicago Times, but quickly reopened. He shut down the New York Daily News. Not the worst of ideas ever. <laughs> and he uh, arrested a lot of editors, police, officials. When it came to election time, it was very curious how the Republican uh, troops would always seem to be somewhere near the polling place, and Democrats were occasionally uh, convinced that they ought not to vote. There's a marvelous sequence there. We'll find it along. Oh, here it is. You should read that, 381. Uh, I'd like to hear Gorbachev read some of his own stuff, too. Anywhere you find an appropriate beginning. This is about using troops at polling places. I thought that in... He came from Illinois. Illinois produced Richard J. Daly. 
And very often, shall we say, there were persuasive aspects of our devoting in Chicago, and Lincoln was not averse to using it here. Well, this is at the, uh, the, uh, the election, the midterm election. Uh, the loss of New York State came as no surprise to Lincoln, but it was a matter of bitterness to Stanton, who had persuaded a friend uh, to run for governor. Now, Wadsworth was defeated, the Democrat was elected. It is tragic, Stanton cried. And like all classic tragedy, to have been expected, said Lincoln on his sofa. There are 100,000 New York men in the army, most of them Republicans, away from home and unable to vote. Wasted, exclaimed Washburn. He was surprised at the extent of the Republican defeat in New York. Well, not entirely wasted, said Lincoln with the beginning of a smile. Mr. Stanton here has placed those very same loyal Republican New Yorkers all around the border states where they will make sure that we get proper majorities. Stanton struck his desk a great blow. We will, too. In Delaware alone, I've got 3,000 men supervising the polling places. In Tennessee, Lincoln, as Jupiter, enjoyed teasing Mars. Oh, General Grant will follow your orders to the last comma. You told him to follow the forms of law as far as convenient. Yeah, and I caught the great line there, the great phrase, as far as convenient. convenient. With all deliberate speed. <laughs> With all deliberate <laughs> speed, you, you get out the vote. Sounds not unlike Cook County, Illinois, which has always been, able, has, has always been Lincoln country here. Yeah. Things were happening north as well as south. There was tremendous resistance to the draft. There was also... Wow, very strong anti-black feeling in New York City. Particularly, there were riots and there were deaths. So this is a little, you know, little recorded in history, though it's in a number of books. But oh, it was also New York City at one point. The mayor and a substantial minority, maybe even a majority, they wanted New York City to secede mm -hmm. from the Union and become a kind of independent city-state. <laughs> when they came to Lincoln with this, he said. I don't think I'm going to let the front door set up housekeeping on its own. <laughs> Just sent the mayor back. Now, also, the question is who would come? Now, the need for volunteers. The South obviously had, well, you two are South. The South is tremendous, as well as Washington, D.C., this military tradition. Well, they military were. Military schools far more than the North. Well, they were more military. They were also, uh, they, they, they were hunters. They were. They were boys who lived outdoors and loved fighting. The North was already industrialized. And, of course, the Northern troops, when conscription came, which is why they had all the riots in New York, the rich could buy a substitute for $600. So they always said, you know, it's the rich man's money versus the poor man's blood. So it was, it was, the whole thing was very unfair. Plus the fact that we were getting a lot of immigrants. This is how the, basically how the North won the war, is that they had more men and they were particularly getting a lot of Irish and Germans. Well, the Irish did not want to. First of all, the Irish and Germans, curiously enough, particularly the Irish, hated the blacks. How this came about, since there are no blacks in Ireland, I don't know, but they didn't like them very much. So when it came time for them to serve in the army, if they thought they were going to be, have to fight to free the black man, they wouldn't have gone. As it was, you could have had a difficult time getting them to go. And they were the ones that caused the great riots in, in the 4th of July, I think it was 1863. And they went around killing black people, and they, they, they killed, I think, the superintendent of police. I mean, it was, it was an awful thing. Finally, Seward had to call, out, call on the archbishop. The archbishop mm -hmm. went out there and really flung some anathemas at their mm -hmm. head, and they, and they 
Then they cooled it. But then they came, the, the, remarkably enough, a couple of hundred thousand did answer the call. For, oh, that was, yeah. well, early in the war, there was suddenly, I mean, when Lincoln said, I must call forth the troops, and I have, I have an oath registered in heaven to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, and they came. As a song. As in and, the song. There's a song. It's remarkable about the songs that came out of it, you know, fratricidal though it was. Maybe that was one of the reasons, too. Oh, the songs were absolutely beautiful. I was, suddenly, I was, as I was listening to that, I was thinking, calling him Old Abe and Father Abram. You and I, of course, are no longer the uh, gazelles we once were springing over the greensward, but... Lincoln was only 52. And he was called... Old Abe. And Old he didn't have Abe. a gray hair in his head. And he was called the Ancient, too. Yeah, it? and the nickname of his two young secretaries, Hay and Nicolay, they called him... They had two nicknames. One was the Ancient, and the other was the Tycoon. And as they... There was, there was their own code when they would refer to the Ancient, and many's tired, you know, and the Tycoon. It's back to this matter of Old Abe. There was something about him, though. That's the point. Young by the calendar, yet somehow... You always think of Lincoln as an old man. Well, I think a lot of it are those photographs. He was the first—he was the first president to use photography. They always used to say that no photographer ever got through Springfield without having to take his picture. Uh, he saw the value of all that, and um, what happened in those days was a three-minute exposure or something to get a daguerreotype. So they, they had—they had these clamps, which would, they'd clamp the back of your neck, uh-huh. which you couldn't see so that you wouldn't move for the two, three minutes, whatever it was, with exposure. It's why nobody is smiling in the 19th <laughs> century. You cannot smile with a clam on your neck. And also the neck gave him, uh, I suppose, a stiff arthritic quality. Well, they gave him that. It also, his face in repose tended to be melancholy. He had an upper left eyelid, which kept sliding down. So occasionally you see that he will lift his left eyebrow in order to, to hold, hold the eyelid up. But those who knew Lincoln said that his great charm was his smile, that he had a marvelous smile and wonderful white teeth, which was very rare in, in those days before dentistry had achieved its, mm-hmm. its, its great art. And he didn't chew tobacco or anything, and so he had these great white teeth, a marvelous smile, and he was very animated. Mm-hmm. But all we get is gloomy Gus, so yeah. he looks like somebody who's just... Well, we stick with Lincoln again. You paint the portrait of Lincoln here, and... and the melancholia part, but also now we come to, he was possessed by dreams, wasn't he, and foreboding. Oh, is that... Oh, he was haunted by dreams and uh, and slept very badly. He had a recurrent dream that he would... He always dreamed this before every great event, and he said, um, I'm on a great river, and I'm on a kind of raft, and I have no pole or anything. And I am drifting, drifting, yeah. drifting. And he dreamt that the night before he was murdered. Yeah. And he told that to the cabinet, and then he told them how curious it was before every great event this had happened. He was speculating that the war was pretty much over, uh, what, it, what it meant. Of course, it meant that he was about to go down that river himself. Yeah. In fact, there's a dream here, a very vivid one, that you recount or you create. Oh, this, based on uh, some historical findings. Uh, oh, the, the, this before, is that's, yeah. The, uh, the, this is about a week before uh, he was killed, uh, and Lincoln is dreaming. And as usual, he was sleeping lightly, alone in a small room off the large bedroom where Mary slept in the huge carved wooden bed. 
Suddenly Lincoln was awakened by an unnatural stillness in the old house where planks never cease creaking or rats moving about in the walls. He opened his eyes in the dark. For an instant he wondered if he might not be dead and in the grave. Then he heard the sound of sobbing. He got out of bed and went into Mary's room. The lights were on, but she was not there. Still in his nightshirt, he went out into the upstairs hall, but neither Lamond nor Crook was on duty. The hall was empty. He looked into the secretary's room. The bed was empty. Then he went downstairs to find that the main hall was empty as well, and there were no doorkeepers or ushers or messengers in sight. Finally, he entered the east room, which was crowded with people. At the room's center, on a catafalque covered with black velvet, a body lay wrapped in a sheet, the face covered by a cloth. Grim-faced people were filing past the body. Some were sobbing, others simply stared, horrified. Lincoln crossed to one of the soldiers who stood guard at the room's entrance. Who is dead in the White House, he asked. The president, said the soldier, seeming to look through him as if he were not visible. He was killed by an assassin. Then a woman at the catafalque suddenly shrieked, and Lincoln awakened in his own bed, face covered with sweat. What does that mean, he wondered. Is it I or another? Are dreams the opposite of the future or the same? He lay for a long time in the dark and wondered. That, incidentally, Studs, is the only time in the book that I go inside Lincoln's mind, mm. and you discovered that passage. That's right. That's that's. Because otherwise, I always yeah. show Lincoln as others see him. As and, others see him. Right. And I never, I never go inside yeah. his mind because I think it's more interesting that way. You, you, you get different views of it. Yeah, this is others saying when Seward changed, but also now we come. Some would say a special cross he had to bear. Perhaps you know, that's Mary Todd Lincoln. Now she was. Well, she, she got had problems. She had problems, but you know, what has been so, what has been overlooked about Mary Todd is that she was uh, from a very great family in Lexington, Kentucky. They were friends of Henry Clay, who had been the head of the Whig Party to which Lincoln belonged. She had been courted in youth by Judge Douglas, uh, Stephen Douglas. She had. Uh, she was cousin of John Breckinridge. Southern candidate. Yeah, Jefferson Davis had gone to school in Lexington. She'd known him. She was a witty, charming, well-educated woman by the standards of those days, spoke perfect French. And when her sister married the daughter of a governor of Illinois, she came to Springfield, and she was the first young lady of Springfield. And she had what they call the coterie, which was the social group in town. Everybody wanted to be part of it. Well, Lincoln was by then a young state legislator, and he was what they call a scrub, which means a, what's a word for a lower-class boy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a rule of um, all great men is that they always m- marry above their station. So uh, mar- He married up. He married up. He was upwardly mobile, and she was marvelous. She had always suffered from headaches, but there wasn't anything crazy about her. Then as they got to the White House... She began to go mad. It got worse and worse and worse. And by the end, she really was, in fact, after Lincoln was uh, dead, her her son, Robert, had her put away. When she died here in Chicago, they performed an autopsy on the head. Curious, because even in those days, they would perform an autopsy on the whole body. And they found that uh, she had degeneration of the brain, 
of a sort that could be comparable with, I've never been able to get a full report on this, with paresis. So that's when the reference is used with a capital H, the headache. The that headache. Possessed her was something. Well, else. it was physical. It, she yeah. wasn't, in other words, she was not a neurotic yeah. uh, harridan as she's been portrayed. She was a woman yeah. whose brain was being destroyed. Yeah, but the big question comes up that you raise and touch upon throughout is since she came from the South, the aristocratic South, and the affluent part of the South, and related closely friendship or blood to Southern leaders, where were her? Sympathies. Oh, her sympathies, unlike Lincoln, who was uh, largely indifferent to the issue of slavery, she was a violent abolitionist. And her first memories were of the slave block in Lexington, Virginia, and of uh, runaway slaves used to come and stay at the Todd house. Uh, and her father sort of went along with it, and she, uh, she really hated slavery. And as much as she loved, she had, I think it was three brothers and three half-brothers. Uh, and she... Well, you know, she's a southern woman. She adored her kin. When they went over to the other side and fought for the South, she said she, if they were killed, it served them damn well right. I mean, she was that strong about it, whereas Lincoln himself was much more sentimental and much more uh, giving on that issue. There's a very moving scene in here when she meets this black woman who works for Mrs. Keckley, and that subject comes up. Oh, yes, between her and Keckley, who stayed with her to the end, by the way. Long after after uh, Lincoln died, Keckley stayed on and looked after her. You know, uh, their oldest, Lincoln's oldest son, Robert, was a great friend of my grandfather. And uh, my grandfather used to tell me stories about Robert. That's the Senator Gore. Senator Gore, whom I lived with till I was my first ten years of my life. And uh, Robert Lincoln was, uh, I think, president of the Pullman Company at one point. And my grandfather uh, heard quite a few stories, which he passed on to me. One was that father and son had never got on very well. That on the one hand, Lincoln wanted the boy to have everything that he himself did not have. Lincoln had only had about three weeks of schooling in all his life. So he sent him to Exeter, and then he sent him on to Harvard. Well, what happens is the boy becomes a, an Eastern-type lawyer and uh, with a Western-type father, and they don't have much to talk about. And there was a real coldness between them. My grandfather told me a funny story once about how he had a constituent, a lady who had written a new book about Abraham Lincoln, and she's got new material, and she said, I know you know Robert Lincoln. Could you arrange a meeting? So. My grandfather dutifully invited Robert Lincoln and this lady to lunch at the Senate dining room. And Robert Lincoln was very cold, correct kind of Boston lawyer. And the lady sits down. She's very exuberant. She says, I've done, I've done a lot of research, Mr. Lincoln, and I now have absolute proof that your father, President Lincoln, was the illegitimate son of John C. Calhoun. Hey. I said to my grandfather, and what did Robert Lincoln say to that? He said, he said nothing. And she went on talking, and he said, and the lunch broke up, and he said, I never saw Robert Lincoln again in my yeah. life. He dropped <laughs> me, too. Yeah. That's funny you mentioned it, because in, in the book, you mentioned Billy Herndon. Oh, comes yeah. To Lincoln's own law partner he came up with that theory, too, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Well, no, actually, what Herndon came up with, she got it a bit wrong. Uh, Lincoln told Herndon that his mother, he, his, his Lincoln's mother, had been illegitimate and that her father was a very great Virginia politico, grandee from that part of the world. 
and Herndon, a lot of people suspected that it might have been Cal- Calhoun, might have been his grandfather. They, 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 they looked quite a bit alike. But Herndon was with him, what, 17 years as law partner. Herndon's a fascinating man, and he worshiped Lincoln. And he, but he had interesting things to say about him. He said his ambition was like a little clock that just went tick, yeah. tick, tick, yeah. and never stopped. Yeah. It was always there. He was always going to be the first man in the Republic from the very beginning. He knew yeah. this was not kindly, kindly old Carl Sandburg Abe. This was Julius Caesar. Yeah, beginning so a career. A really, an ambitious guy. Almost, almost in a sense, the opposite of George Washington. Gary Wills just done a state white called Cincinnatus, you know. Oh, I haven't read that. And no, and, and of course, it's precisely the rejection of or walking away from it. And here's Lincoln walking toward it. Well, he's walking toward it. And uh, the only clue I ever got that I could find to why Lincoln took this extraordinary position on the Union and made something just mystical about it, because... The sensible thing probably would have been to let the South go, and they would have come back in due course. I mean, well, they're not going to go very far down there. But when he was about 28 or 29, he made a speech to the Young Men's Lyceum Club of Springfield, Illinois. And he read them a paper, and it was more or less it was supposed to be about George Washington. It was really about ambition. And he said, you know what a terrible thing it is for a young man ambitious person in a society, a republic like this, which has already been founded. All the glory goes to the founders, to the George Washington. So we go to the Congress, so we occupy the chair of the president himself, but we are, we are just successors. Now he said, isn't this a terrible thing for a man who might be of the race of the lion or of the eagle? And might he not be tempted to free all the slaves or to enslave us all? Hmm. Well, that is Caesar speaking. Now, I think, this is just my own hunch, that he took the catastrophe of the Civil War, uh, before the war began, of these states leaving the Union, as an opportunity to reconstitute the United States and to refound it and give a new birth to freedom, as indeed he says in the Gettysburg Address. And when he came to do his last inaugural, he used two very interesting adjectives, I thought. He said, four years ago when I spoke to you for the first time, there were elements that wanted to make a civil war, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, and the war came. But he said, none of us then realized on what such a large scale, what a large scale it would be, and that it would bring about events so fundamental and mm. astounding. Now, what does fundamental mean? That means getting down to the bases, starting yeah. all over again. Astounding means yeah. I am giving you a new republic. This is a new nation. Yeah, astounding. I'll astonish you. Yes, and I have astonished you. This is yeah. this positively Shakespearean, you know. As of course, he was probably the greatest American prose writer. And with that, then, I think that he sort of, uh, I wouldn't say he welcomed being assassinated, but he seemed to, he kept saying, I'm not going to outlast this conflict. When this great trouble ends, I end. uh, And he burns himself out. He lost 30 pounds in the last six months of his life. Nobody knows why. He didn't seem to be ill. Anyway, I was thinking, I've reached the mountaintop. 
Yes, I've seen the river. Lincoln believed he had a theory about the colonization, did he not? Of, of oh, he wanted, when the war was over, he wanted uh, all the blacks to leave the United States and go down to Central America. Yeah, that, anywhere that is a long sequence visited by some black journalists and uh, spokesmen yeah, leaders. Th this is all practically taken from yeah. a um, transcript of what happened at this meeting. I think it was around 1863 when Lincoln called in some black leaders from the North, uh, free men, born free, educated ministers and so on. Uh, and he called them in to really sound them out on this thing of colonization. And he does his best uh, to persuade them. Needless to say, they did not enjoy what he told them. And he says, you know, perhaps you have long been free, perhaps all your lives. Nevertheless, your race is suffering, in my judgment, the greatest wrong inflicted on any people. But even when you cease to be slaves, you are still a long way from being placed on an equality with the white race. Lincoln turned his cloudy gaze on a large man, a minister from New York. The aspiration of men is to enjoy equality with the best when free. But on this broad continent, not a single man of your race has made the equal of a single man of ours. Hey, this is the boy who's his secretary. Wondered what the fiery Negro leader Frederick Douglass would answer to that. So perhaps did the ancient who closed the argument. Go where you are treated the best, and the ban is still upon you. I do not propose to discuss this, but to present it as a fact with which we have to deal. I cannot alter it if I want it. Hay wondered if Lincoln would want to alter it. Although Lincoln had a true hatred of slavery, as much for the brutal effect it had on the masters as on the enslaved, he was unshaken in his belief that the colored race was inferior to the white. Hay concurred, but Hay's belief was not unshakable. He had long suspected that given the same advantages as a white man, a Negro was probably every bit as capable. The fact that Lincoln had always found it difficult to accept any sort of natural equality between the races stemmed, Hay thought, from his own experience as a man born with no advantage of any kind who had then gone to the top of the world. Lincoln had no great sympathy for those who felt that external circumstances had held them back. Then he goes on to try That's and convince so much them. like, uh, you know... Uh, Immigrant groups and their children saying, by God, we worked, we made it here, by God, why can't you? Yeah. And without considering the fact that some are visible, some are not. And that uh, there are other problems yeah. and conditioning. Anyway, the minister from New York, finally, after he has uh, uh, started to talk about colonization, minister from New York, this is a black man, says, Mr. President, is one thing to offer a new country. This was down in what is now Nicaragua, is what he was offering uh, the blacks. It's one thing to offer a new country a thousand miles away to men who have been slaves all their lives, and quite another to propose that people like us pull up stakes and leave our homes for the wilderness, no matter how rich in coal mines and farmland and so on. After all, this is our country too. Some of our families go back to the very beginning, so why on earth should we leave home to go and settle this wilderness that Congress is going to give you? Plainly, Lincoln was taken aback by the minister's directness, but he rose to the challenge. Why else have I asked you here except, as I have said, that I need your help? I am quite aware that many of you have no desire to go, but if intelligent, educated men such as yourselves don't go, then how will the former slaves manage to organize themselves? How will they support themselves? E.M. Thomas, who was one of the black leaders, took the president's rhetorical question for a real one. 
Well, Mr. President, for three centuries, they've done a fine job of supporting themselves and their white masters. So I think we can assume that if they are not obliged to sustain a white population in luxury, they will be able to look after themselves nicely. Yeah. <laughs> Lincoln's jaw set in a fashion <laughs> that was rare with him. And, he's, and, he, and, 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 and he got off the... Yeah. He gets off the subject, and anyway, he's, he has not convinced them, and he's rather disappointed. And then at the end, when the last of the colored men had left the room, Lincoln said to Hay, as a convenient surrogate for himself, why would any colored man want to live in this country where there is so much hatred of him? And Hay says, well, perhaps they think that that will change once slavery is gone. Lincoln shook his head. They are passions too deep for even a millennium to efface. Hmm. Anything. So you think of uh, analogies or, or, or connotations for now, too, in a way. But that's, that's an astonishing encounter. I'm reminded of something that you know very well, because you know, you know those people very well, those people. And talking about Bobby Kennedy's meeting with some of the black artists, James Baldwin and some of the others came along to see him. And they were astonished at his not quite at the beginning, digging what it was about. Just I'm sure Reverend Thomas was astonished at Lincoln, not digging what it was about. Oh, no, didn't have a clue. And yeah. on top of that, aside from the naivete of, 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 of getting rid of three million black people in the South, it was the whole workforce of the South, free or slave. How, how did they just survive? That, you raise a big question. This is one of those imponderables, and I, it's a fantasy question. What would this country be like without black people? And then you start thinking, not only how pallid it would be. Literally, there'd have been li no, literally pallid. Literally pallid. There'd be no jazz music. You know, <laughs> there'd be none of the juices that make it a, a unique society. And you start thinking, who would do some of that work, by the way, that's doing it? And the lady would start cleaning her own floors, too, then. The ladies would clean their own floors. On the other hand, as the way things are going, had they gone down to Nicaragua, they would be right back here with the Hispanics and so on, yeah. recapturing the lands that we stole from Mexico. We're thinking about Lincoln. And, of course, we haven't talked about some of the others who are watching, you say, observing Lincoln. John Hay, the younger of his two secretaries, Nicolay and Hay. Uh, John Hay is in a sense, close to being the narrator or the observer, is he not? He, he runs all through it, yes, and he, because he, come, he came to Washington with Lincoln and remained until he was killed. And then he went on to become Secretary of State under, under McKinley and then Theodore Roosevelt, which is the next book I'm doing, by the way. Oh, it is? I'm covering uh, from the First World War, uh, from uh, Spanish-American War, through 1919. So now think about this. Then you have, uh, through your historical novels, starting with, with Burr. With Burr. Burr. Lincoln and, now. And the year. 1876. 1876. Washington, D.C. And between 1876 and Washington, D.C. will come this book about the Spanish-American War and the First World War, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and I'm calling that Manifest Destiny. Then comes Washington, D.C., which is already written, and then, if I am spared, I shall end it with something called the Golden Age, which will be told from the point of view of the present, whenever that will be, which was not the Golden Age nowadays. We, we've passed our prime. Hmm. 
And Past uh, our prime. Oh yes, I'm going to I'm I'm going to narrow in on 1945 to 1950, which is the only period in my lifetime that we have not been at war, hot or cold, or in a depression. So it's mm. this. There was yeah. five years there. It was the most exciting time, I would say, in the history of the United States, at least in uh, 45 in to 50. Yeah. It was just the war, the war, World War II it had ended. just ended. There was the great alliance there. This Johnny came marching home, the GI Bill. We uh, were on top of the world. We were the world's greatest power. We had the atom bomb. Nobody else had it. I mean, uh, just remember studs in the arts. I mean, one, one night, Streetcar Named Desire opened. The next night, The Death of Salesman opened. Uh, Aiken the Dead came out. Other Voices, Other Rooms. I mean, whether you like these books or not isn't the point. It was very exciting. Lenny Bernstein, On the Town. I mean, the whole thing was just taking off. Jazz, a, a new stage of jazz, a renaissance of folk music. Yeah, and then 1950, the and you get the Korean War, you get Joe yeah. McCarthy, and you get the CIA becoming a rogue elephant. And uh, You call that the golden age. You yeah, said reach those the prime. Are you, are you saying that it's downhill all the way? Oh, sure. The empire is overextended, as we can Reflections on a see. sinking ship. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> I, I'll call my next volume of essays Submarine, <laughs> <laughs> or The View Through the Periscope. <laughs> Coming back, so funny. Huh? So this is part of a... I'm really telling the story series. of the country from the very beginning. I often think that between... I was very close to Senator Gore, my grandfather, mm. and between the two of us, he was born in 1870, and between the two of us, our lives are half that of the Republic. You and your grand... As well, he was born in 1870. Yeah. So he was born five years after the end of, world, of, of the, the Civil Sim War. And lived through Reconstruction in Mississippi, so he uh, he knew what it and was like. World War One certainly up to World War Two, and he lived through World. Uh, he lived, yeah, he lived till 1949. 49. So, uh, but putting our two lives together, well, that's more than half the country. So I'm telling the story of our family, an imaginary family, and the Republic. Yeah. I'm weaving the three together. Yeah. I am redreaming the Republic. Okay, back to the book. We're talking Gore Vidal, and Lincoln is the historical novel that's in the middle of this series that, in a way, encompasses a country, its growth, and uh, climb upwards or striving upwards and <laughs> reach the peak. Uh, you're one of the few who, who treat, as I see it, a certain congressman, a Lincoln's contemporary, Thad Stevens, with some respect and truth. He was the villain, you know, in, in The Birth of a Nation. In Dito Griffith's Birth of the Klansman, he was the dirty, vicious radical who was out to mongrelize. Oh, the yeah, whiteness. Thaddeus Stevens, and they always said, and I mean, he was hard on the South, but uh, he's been the villain of every sort of romantic pro Southern piece ever written. But he was a highly brilliant man and very thoughtful, very witty man. He <laughs> Lincoln had to appoint somebody called Simon Cameron, who was a big crook, crook from Pennsylvania, Secretary of War. And he turned to Thaddeus Stevens, who was a congressman from Pennsylvania, and he said, you don't really think, Mr. Stevens, that uh, my new secretary of war is going to steal while he's in the War Department? And Thaddeus Stevens thought a moment. He said, well, Mr. President, let me put it this way. I don't think he would steal a red-hot stove. 
Well, <laughs> Lincoln was very tickled by this, so he told everybody. Word got back to Simon Cameron, who was furious, and demanded an apology. So Thaddeus Stevens said, all right, I apologize. I did not say that I do not believe that you would steal a red-hot stove. I think I've left out a negative yeah. there, but anyway. So that, that made it even worse. <laughs> I did not do that you would not steal a red But here's a, about, he's about Lincoln. Thaddeus Stevens uh, launched a Ciceronian period here. I guess the guy was a very eloquent guy, too. Oh, brilliant. Talking to Chase about Lincoln and the slaves and liberation. Well, Mr. Chase, I suppose that you and Mr. Lincoln have had a joyous day celebrating the freeing of all those slaves that you cannot free and the continuation of the enslavement of those you could free. I mean, those are the border states. Yes. I guess he was a... Oh, he was, uh, he was very salty about all this. And uh, he conceived the idea of free slaves to have 40 acres and a mule. Yes, that was his conception. He also, just as a minor detail, he had the most beautiful wig in Washington at that time. But, I mean, it was just many storm-tossed ironic <laughs> locks. And one woman was going through Capitol asking for locks of hair of her favorite statesman. So she came to Thaddeus Stevens, and she shyly said, could I have, sir, a lock of your hair? Why, madam, of course you can, and took off the wig and handed it to her and <laughs> said, cut anywhere you like. You know, talk about piquant aspects to the book. There's one, uh, the Union General Hooker, you know, was also, yeah. Lincoln was thinking of him to replace McClellan, and of course it was Grant. But Hooker, uh, there were camp followers, and so the word we use today, part of our vocabulary, came out of the Civil War. Yeah, the uh, hooker. They, they were known as as hookers' girls, and then they just left out the word girls, and they became hookers. Like, Imagine belonging to the Hooker family. <laughs> I, my, my ancestor, General Hooker, has now gone into the language. We haven't talked about uh, the assassins. So, you see, throughout the book, there in is interspersed. Someone you invented, I think, David Harold. No, he's a real character, a real but character. I invented a lot. We yeah. don't know much about him. He was a, he he worked in a pharmacy across from uh, from the White House, and he was uh, t taken up by John Wilkes Booth, and Booth was sort of the Richard Gere of his day, a very romantic young star, but very pro-Southern. He was playing in Washington, and he was also conspiring, and his plot wasn't all that dumb. I mean, he the South was running out of men. What he wanted to do was kidnap Lincoln and then exchange, take him to Richmond, and exchange Lincoln for 100,000 uh, Southern prisoners, of whom one was my great-grandfather, who was mm. taken prisoner at Chickamauga. Now, that was a pretty good idea, but then... Your grandfather was with the Confederate Army. He was with the yeah, Mississippi Regiment. Mississippi. And uh, it was that was not a bad notion, but uh, then Richmond falls, and um, Booth then decides to, to kill Abraham Lincoln. And most of the, a couple of the conspirators then quit on him, but David Harrell stayed with him. And there's been all kinds of conjecture that, that Secretary of War Stanton may have been in on it and that Wilkes Booth was being helped out by this one and that one. I don't think there's much in that. What is interesting, though, and has never been thoroughly investigated, and I'm sure it's too late now, is there was a second conspiracy mm. to kill Lincoln. And Booth got wind of it and acted as quickly as he did. And you can see in the photograph of the second inaugural as, as a photograph of the portico of the Capitol. And Lincoln is doing his with, with malice toward none and charity for all. To Lincoln's left, up the steps, standing at the base of a winged statue, 
is a handsome young man with his hand in his pocket, and that is John Wilkes Booth, mm. who had a gun in his pocket. And then down front, below the podium where the president is speaking, there are a bunch of people lined up listening, and three of them are conspirators mm. and part of the Booth gang. Mm. I was looking for a sick semper tyrannus, but I guess he never said that, did he? Uh, he just broke his leg. He just, he just, <laughs> he just jumped off and broke his ankle. <laughs> We're talking to Gore Vidal. As you can see, the uh, the book itself, it flows as all of Vidal's books do, both his essays as well as, his, in this instance, his historical novel. And it's a, a portrait of Lincoln, a scene by others round and about him. And if I was one, I mean, there's so many other things to talk about. The hour's just about up. But one, again, a piquant note, I like that word. And that's about Mary Lincoln and her expenditures. So it looks like Jackie Kennedy had an, an antecedent in that respect, that, uh, that Lincoln worried about that too, didn't he? Oh, indeed he did. She was something like $50,000 in debt, which is like $500,000 now. And that leads to another subplot, nothing that involved difficulties, but that were in the book. Uh, that could have been pretty troublesome, involving her need for dough. Oh, she was constantly uh, trying, extorting money out of people, and somebody finally got a hold of three of her letters and blackmailed Lincoln with it, and he had to get an intermediary to buy up the letters that she had written, but he, he was very forbearing and forgave her. But he did say rather wearily, it's the only time he's ever heard to comment, really, on her behavior. And he thanked the person who had bought the letters, and he said, I don't talk about my private life, it's too sad, but he said, uh, I am convinced that much of Mrs. Lincoln's behavior is due to the fact that she is partially insane. I know the last thing, the obvious thing, you said earlier with the greatest prose writer, you think, you know, that we've had, well, certainly the president's president, we know he liked the humor of the time, he used to quote Artemis Warden, a guy called Susan and Petroleum. V. Naseby. And Naseby, yeah. but also the Bible, of course, Shakespeare. So we come to the Gettysburg Address, and when he did that, it laid a bomb, and with the London Times said this was a, a zero. Oh, yeah, and uh, Lincoln himself thought that it had failed because uh, when he finished speaking, the crowd was watching a photographer who was up on a platform trying under his black hood. The speech was so short that by the time Lincoln... Lincoln had sat down by the time the photographer was ready. The photographer began to swear, and the audience began to laugh at the photographer's swearing. And Lincoln, who was quite sick at the time but didn't know it, turned to uh, Seward, and he said, well, he said, that speech fell on them like a wet blanket. That was the London time, but just a, a, a note of local pride. The Chicago Tribune at the time called the shot, and they spoke of it as a memorable speech, one that will be remembered. So the Trib called the shot and the uh, London Times muffed. And we don't know what they said in Australia. <laughs> in Australia. <laughs> we come to, that's another story, a sad one here for Chicago at the moment. And so we come to Gore Vidal and the hour, quickly, all too quickly with them. Lincoln is the book, and it's published by Random House, and it's uh, revealing and excellent reading and also with all sorts of insights. Well, as, as, as Ken Galbraith says about, about Vidal's writing, a superb story, fascinating, of another novel, it certainly applies to this one. As usual, thank you very much. Thank you, Studs. And let's end where we began with Old Abe Lincoln, Out of the Wilderness. <laughs> 